0: Hello, world. Retrieving Brad and Christy from the cloud.
1: Hi, I'm your host, Christy Hornland.
0: And I'm Brad Rayford. Welcome to the Risk Factors, Perspectives, and IoT podcast.
1: And today, we're diving into deceit. Well, cyber deception, that is, with KPMG's Anthony Mitchell.
0: Let's get to it.
1: All right, so today we have Anthony Mitchell joining us to talk about cyber deception and resiliency, and besides sounding like a great title to a sci-fi novel, I'm sure Anthony's going to reveal a little bit more of that sector. It's great to have you on with us.
2: Hey, thank you very much. It's uh, it's a pleasure to join. And actually, the deception is that we're not actually going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about something else.
1: Um, We love a hook.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, ha- happy to to be here and and have this dialogue.
1: Yeah, definitely excited to have you on. I'm, I've got to say, I feel like it's a pretty uncommon topic to see focus on. So I'm I'm excited to see where this goes today. I also maybe want to talk about uh, a little bit, uh, say outside of the realm of cyber. We like to do a little bit of a welcome welcome to the room type of question icebreaker per se. And you know, on the topic of deception, there's a very popular show out right now, and I kind of like to to get a gist from you, Anthony. You know how good you really are at deception, how confident you might be. There's a show called "Is It Cake," and I would say this is this is one of the most phenomenal shows about deception out there presently. Not in the cyber realm, but their whole premise is actually to create. Cakes that look like other things. So I I will say, Anthony, you know, going into this, do you feel like from your background in cyber deception that you might be able to be a, a top contender on such a show?
2: Maybe not cake. Um, But I actually am a bread maker. So uh, um, so I might be able to make bread that looks like something, uh, but is actually bread. Um, So uh, but yeah, it's, uh, uh, you know, that I can definitely tell you I've seen shows like that. Um, I think it's pretty cool. Uh, And my wife does make cakes. uh, So uh, she, uh, she could probably make a cake that looked like something absolutely insane that you probably wouldn't want to eat. But the moment you ate it, you would love it. So Um, so I, I, I could, I could definitely see myself, uh, involved in some effort like that.
1: Sam, I'm thinking in my head, I'm like, you've got all of the skill sets. You've got the wife that can bake the cake. That looks like the bread. You've got you taking the bread, making it into something else. There's really, there's a lot of, of quality skill sets out there.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a, it's, it's fun. You know, it was one of those things, um, uh, my wife had a little bit of an issue with, uh, conventional bread. Um, and so we got into making sourdough, uh, because it, it, it set settled much better. And, uh, next thing, you know, we're making sourdough bread all the time. I don't even buy bread from the store anymore.
1: Wow, I'm just thinking of March, 2020. You must've been the most popular people on the block. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. All so, right. How,
0: how yeah. old is your starter yeast or your oh, starter geez.
2: So so we've are uh, yeah so the uh uh the starter is i want to say it's at least 6 months right now but we lost the one that we had before that which ran uh a couple years And uh, we had actually gotten a cut from a colleague of mine uh, a while back that was like a a family heirloom uh, handed down through generations. Um, But uh, we haven't been the best about keeping those things going. So when we need a new one, we'll we'll start it up. uh, And it's not too hard of a process.
0: So now I've heard there's a lot of controversy in the bread baking world about the quality of a starter being related to the it's age, right? I'm not a bread baker. I'm a bread eater. So I, I don't know, I I don't know that I've ever done a direct comparison of sourdough made from a super old starter versus one made with a starter from yesterday. Do you have an opinion on the matter? Yeah, you know,
2: next- from my yeah, from my perspective, I would just tell you that I think that um um any sourdough is a good sourdough um i you know between the one that i had that was a couple years old and even the fresh ones we've had it really comes down to how long you let the yeast do the action um and how that translates to the flavor and so there's there i would say there's more impact from my perspective on the process that you follow to create the sourdough uh versus uh um versus the age of the starter but uh but then again you know i i would say i'm you know an armchair bread baker. Um, but it is, it is something that uh, (laughs) I do, uh, um, at least on a, on a weekly basis now.
0: Very cool. I think Paul Hollywood would appreciate the insight, right. To all of those, uh, that are are burgeoning bread makers and want to be bakers. Absolutely.
1: Well, believe it or not, we did bring you on here to talk more than bread or cake or all of the above. So maybe to kick off here, Anthony, you know, I I know I've thrown around the term cyber deception and some people might be able to start picking up just by the name what it might be but I was hoping you might be able to lay out for us maybe a definition that that made sense to our audience.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, first I would say that uh you know, there's there's good history in, you know, deception in defensive tactics period, right? So, um, deceptions often been used in traditional wartime con- uh, conflict type scenarios and and I can tell you that from uh, the evolution into the, the the cyber realm you've seen uh, that th- those techniques adopted and even codified in standards. so uh, NIST 800-160 specifically highlights deception as a cyber resilient engineering technique. Um, and so you know there's there's definitely greater interest in this and you know at its, at its core, deception is about, you know, misdirecting and frankly, controlling the behavior of the adversary through something that you've put in place um, uh, as kind of the best way to think about it. And so, uh, you know, that could be something that's at the endpoint, could be something on the network, could be something within the identity sphere, or even baked into an application itself. Um, But the idea being that, you know, if you create a scenario or a situation that will draw an adversary um out of their hiding or masquerading as an administrator to touch something that maybe should never be touched or to interact in a way that should never occur um then that increases the likelihood that you will be able to detect and and respond to them
0: so anthony would it be fair would it be fair to say that i think in the general cyber world everyone's very familiar with the concept of honeypots mm-hmm. right You put something out there, you make it look super attractive. It's exactly what it sounds. You get the attacker, Winnie the Pooh, to come up and stick his hand in the honeypot, right? And he's stuck. Would it be fair to say, a fair characterization, that deceptive techniques, cyber deception, goes beyond mere honeypots? Uh, And to what degree? How would you differentiate those two concepts in someone's mind?
2: Yeah, you know, I would say that you know a honeypot is one way to implement a deception. Um, uh, you know, it's uh, largely a, a you know fictitious environment that you set up that is so enticing that the adversary wants to dwell within it. Um, uh, but I would say that uh, you know more modern deception constructs are finding ways to integrate within the natural technical ecosystem of, of an environment um, whether it's putting the deception right on a box that somebody actively uses um, but you know if an adversary stumbled on that machine, they would be, you know, detecting it through reconnaissance. Um, so, you know, I would say the concept of the honeypot is still exists, certainly within the research community. Lots of honeypots out there, whether it's uh, uh, IoT or ICS-related uh uh, uh, studies that are, that are occurring or, you know, creating enticing targets that adversaries will then deploy their customized malware tools out into them. And then it becomes a research report. (laughs) So, uh, but, but increasingly, you know, you do see deceptions as something that's being built into the native configuration, uh, of an environment, whether it's a, something as simple as a planted account, right? Um, maybe this is, um, Domain administrative or other high privileged account, um, but it has other controls in the back end that don't make it very useful. But in an adversary doing their reconnaissance for that account, they might say, "Hey, this is a this is a target I want to go after." And the moment you see that authentication against that account for the first time, it's like, "Hey, nobody had any business touching that account. We need to interrogate that asset and understand it further." Um, so, lots of different ways um, today to to implement that. Um, and uh, and it 's increasingly complex when you consider uh i o t landscapes and uh, and the fact that you know a lot of devices in that sphere uh, can be very simple um, and therefore you know you have to think of different ways to apply deceptions to them
1: yeah, I think there's an interesting point, and we don 't have to harp on it right now per se, but when you think about even an i o t device right you 've got those that are connected directly to the internet and those that may not, they'd be going through something else. So somebody that previously had stated, you know, this is out of the realm of something that may be attacked because it's not directly connected, um, has something in between rather, you know, actually is another venue to actually go through. So interesting, interesting kind of thought there, but I, I do want to, you know, go down that path on, One piece that you brought up when you began to talk a little bit about it being identity and infrastructure and maybe on the data piece as well, you know, I'm thinking about as you're building your cyber deception program, you know, how do you create that? Is it around the realms of those those three kind of categories that you brought up? Or is it along the realms of, of what you're trying to achieve there, whether it's the misdirection or or the use of resources from your attacker, that sort of uh, approach how How would you say?
2: yeah, you know what I would say is you really want to start with what's important, right um, you know when you think and some people would consider this to be crown jewels analysis. Um, um, but but inevitably, the adversary wants to achieve an objective in your environment, and depending on your industry sector, vertical, that objective might be something um, that is sabotage oriented, could be espionage oriented. Um, and so when you when you really co- you know take a step back and you think about what's critical to your business, and what types of things would an adversary actually want to achieve in your environment. That should form the basis of where you put deceptions um, because you know it's not that deceptions can't be valuable if you don't consider that, but the closer you are to value um, the more you're going to be able to reduce the likelihood of false positives um, in in that deception application uh, and the the higher fidelity hits that you will get um, out of uh, out of monitoring those deceptions so uh as an example take uh uh well then once you have those things that are important, those things that are important could be your data in which case you might want to create deceptions that are associated with that data now, the question is is it structured data or unstructured data, right? Um, so are you going to build the deception within the construct of a database, or are you going to uh, put something within a file? So just, just to share, share an example, um, there was one time I, I created a, a deceptive file, um, and uh, the, the particular use case in question was there was a repository of highly sensitive um, intellectual property. And these were unstructured data files. So, you know, word documents, PDFs, that kind of thing. Um, and so what we did as in the deception was we used the hex editor to create a very, very short string. Um, and this string was, uh, uh, didn't make any sense. If you put it in an input into any device, you know, you wouldn't get any reasonable output, but what was unique about this is that if you ran a compression algorithm Against that, uh, most common compression algorithms would result in a change of that string. But the way that this is structured, it was not impacted by those compression algorithms. So the string maintained its integrity, whether it was in a zip file or whether it wasn't. Um, uh, Similarly, it had a very unique name. Um, So if you had uh, an adversary that, let's say, wanted to steal all of these files... Um, if this file was in there, um, one of the techniques that they might use is just to move the files themselves, in which case this string is there. And we had specialized monitors that would look for that string. So if it crossed a boundary, whether IDS IPS style thing, um, it would, uh, Uh, It would detect the movement of that file. And frankly, nobody ever had a business interacting with that file because it's just a useless string masquerading as a PDF, (laughs) right? Um, but, uh, um, But at the end of the day, part of a adversary's OPSEC might be to try and obfuscate the movement of that data by putting it into an archive. Um, So unless the adversary both encrypted the file as well as the table of contents, there was a likelihood that we were going to be able to see it, right? So the deception was the file itself and monitoring for the movement of that file. But then there was a configuration around that deception that that really played to the way that adversaries engage on a network. Um, In this case... You know, collecting files, staging them, and you know, potentially using an archived uh, or archive mechanism to move them on and off of a network. So, um, so the best deceptions are ones that uh, are oriented toward the value, and then secondarily toward the adversary's behaviors. Um, and uh, and that's where I would tell people to start. And if that leads you to data, and it leads you to infrastructure, or it leads you to network,
0: then um, then that's uh, uh, that's where you go. So Anthony, this may seem like a, a remedial question, but I'm going to consider myself uh, the remedial student in this case. So with a deception strategy, and we'll use the example that you just said, where you had a file, the string embedded in the file, uh, that assumes that the attacker is already in your network, correct? That you've already been compromised. Now, would it be... Is, is it naive of me to think that I should have detected the attacker before they got to that file. Why am I letting them, why am I waiting until this file is being exfiltrated or moved or migrated to take action? Is there a way to, to either prevent it from happening and not needing deception or is deception now just a requirement because given enough time and resources, everyone can be hacked?
2: Yeah. I, and, there, and there's a lot of interesting points, points of view relative to the application of, of, of a kill chain in discussions um, I would tell you, I view kill chains as an iterative mechanism. So, you know, an adversary, you know, starting from the outside, working their way in, their objective is to get in, right? And they go through a whole series of that kill chain in order to get in. Now, once they've gotten in, you know, they're going to say, okay, what's important? What's interesting based on maybe other external factors that I want to get to? That's another iteration of the kill chain and then potentially a third and a fourth and a fifth until finally they get to what their, what their overarching objective is. And so the example that I provided was to your point, an example of an end state, like end of the kill chain loop, uh, catching the adversary, um, in the movement of data files. But I would say you could move. Further up in those iterations, um, and and build deceptions for adversaries that are just reconning on the internet. Um, you could uh, and there, and are going through that first iteration of uh, of the kill chain. And what you might find is you know you're going to be focused on things like creating a um, uh, uh, an RDP access to your environment from the outside. Now it looks like it's coming into your environment, but really it's going into some like cloud containerized place um, and uh, and maybe you make it such that they're able to you know query it maybe they, maybe they can even find some credential that's associated with it um, but you're isolating it from the rest of your infrastructure that kind of gets to that honeypotting concept and honeypots I would say live really well um, on the uh, um, uh, on the internet when it comes to deceptions. Um, So, you know, I would say depending on the value and depending on your appetite for risk, as well as your capacity for managing through false positives, you can move to some of those er earlier iterations of the kill chain, but you may run into more false positives. Let's face it, there's lots of people on the internet probing services that are going to attempt to take advantage of that RDP. Um, Now, one step into your network now you have the user population and you have curious people who will end up, you know, tripping on your deception. Um, but that's not necessarily a bad thing either because the deception doesn't necessarily have to apply just to a cyber adversary, could also apply to a malicious insider. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, uh, in the case of the flat file I talked about, that was a, um, that was something that was targeted toward both an insider and an external adversary.
0: Right. And that that resonates with me. I think if we look at the data, and I don't have the facts off the top of my head, but uh, reports would say that the majority of data breaches occur from non-malicious insiders who have who have over-entitled access accounts, they have access to files they shouldn't have, and they're curious, right? I myself am a very curious individual. Uh, with the nature of my job, when I go out to critical infrastructure sites, I have a, a self-rule that I keep my hands in my pockets because I will want to touch the buttons and flip the switches, which makes people very nervous when I'm around sometimes. But like a, in, in an environment, in a corporate environment, people are like, oh, there's a new file here. What is this? Oh, it says payroll. I want to see that. They may not have the rights or the reason to view it, but who doesn't want to check out a payroll spreadsheet? Right or an executive agenda PDF file. Like there's things that are going to be curious, and we're curious people.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And and I can tell you, you know, if if you know you have a curious population, you could create a um, uh, even what I would call cyber physical deceptions. So uh, share share another interesting example. Um, I had a had a case once where uh, where somebody had picked up a USB drive um, off a desk. Right, um, and that was uh, we had to figure out. Okay, where did this where did this USB drive go? Um, and uh, after doing some research, we discovered that while well, the USB creates a very specific registry key on every single machine that it plugs into, um, and this is common within the realm of forensics, uh, so. Um, So what we ended up doing was we ended up running a massive scan across all the infrastructure for any occurrences of where this USB drive had actually plugged in and came up with two machines, right? So, A, that was part of an investigation um, that we were able to you know button up and, and call to an end. But the other thing that came out of that was this idea that, well, you know what, we have these situations where we're worried about, Um, people coming in and potentially taking technology or or a physical device. What if we created a periodic monitor? So we drop a flash drive somewhere for the curious person who's poking around. Um, And then we periodically monitor for the occurrence of that registry key um, to know that somebody picked it up and plugged it in and then, you know, really kind of say, well, why that was that person in this zone or why did they do that? So, um, so, you know, you can, you can bridge the cyber physical with these deceptions as well.
1: So I'm just thinking from, from the amount of investigation that occurs, either it's, it's malicious or it's something where somebody's just curious, you know, how, how easy is it really to scale these programs? Like what, what allows you to really build this out? Because I'm thinking just about the amount of power that it's going to take to, to really routinely examine everything that's going on.
2: Yeah, I would say there's, there's, there's tiers of complexity. So um, most organizations can do a fake account, uh, DNS entry, um, maybe even some type of fake file. Um, and and that's, that can scale pretty easily. Um, and I would say from small to, to large organizations could do that. Um, when you get into more complicated realms or you want to have a more immersive deception program, there are solutions in the market that will actually run analytics against your environment and then custom craft deceptions based on normative user behavior, right? Um, So if you want to scale out and do deception on a larger scale, I would say, you know, you're going to want to leverage a technology that helps to not only implement, um, but manage uh, um, manage the direction that the adversary is heading into. Um, so that you can you can really optimize your your investment. But here's what one thing I would tell you is that some organizations that don't have a deception program today monitor a lot of use cases within their detection and response functions that may or may not have as much value as investing in a deception. Right? It can become part of that framework. So if you let's say said a hundred percent of my uh, of my monitoring is based on uh, the MITRE attack framework, for example. And you're going to get a lot of great hits um, uh, by leveraging an intelligence-driven framework like MITRE in order to uh, craft your detection philosophy. Um, but you're also going to have false positives that come out based on some of the behaviors. I mean, there are normal accounts that are accessed and if you context that rule incorrectly, um, you know your staff is going to spend a bunch of time saying, nope, this is a false positive, that's a false positive. So you're always you always have to tune. Um, and what I used to say is, well, hey, you know, I can do three or four deceptions that may be associated with this particular MITRE topic, uh, valid accounts being uh, a, a top one on that list. Um, and rather than monitoring all of the accounts that exist, I'm going to create a deception that that plays into the adversary's behavior, and I'm going to let that be my monitor. And um, and, you know, I'm obviously taking a little risk by not looking at the whole population of, of valid accounts in that case. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, all security detection response is a balance. Um, you can't monitor everything and all the use cases in an affordable fashion. <laughs> so um, so if, you, if you have to pick your fights, a deception might be a good way to optimize your engagement and allow you to focus on other higher value monitoring techniques.
1: So maybe to, to kind of think there of how it may be informed. So you mentioned a little piece about the analytics component that comes from um, the platforms that are available. And I'm trying to just put it in, in the realms of how I might think about things. I guess with, with that, are you looking specifically to say, you know, maybe there's a scope of systems that initially has a deception? Say it's either data uh, network your identity, either any of those really, but then beginning to scope down on, on maybe the areas. Is that how the analytics really come into assisting and in informing the program?
2: Yeah, the, the way the way the analytics really integrate is they 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 look at the behavior of the user and they say a user's going out to these file shares, they're interacting with this, um, and um, this is what their normal behavior looks like. They regularly work in with these three applications, and they have these domain names associated with them. And then what they'll do is they'll say, okay, well, what if we created a domain name that was like this application? It's not that application, but it looks like it. So that if an adversary was saying, hey, you know, they're going after uh, app1.companyname.com, Right What if I register app com? So the adversary would say, "Hey, there's two apps associated with this. Um, I'm going to scan both of them. Um, but really, your normal application use only uses app one. Um, and so you know, the fact that they tried to look at App two meant that they were getting, um, uh, they were getting redirected potentially to a honeypot, or it just doesn't resolve. But if you're monitoring the DNS records, for any occurrences of app two, right? It's like, well, why would anybody try to resolve app two? That's not a normal way to go after that. Um, So, there there are, you know, mechanisms. It's mostly focused on looking at the user behavior and then helping to inform very, very hard to detect deceptions. Um, You know, if you create a, if you create an identity that is bad account um, you know, chances are an adversary is not going to spend a time looking at something called bad account, <laughs> right? Um, so there's there's tiers of subterfuge, <laughs> even that that you have with the adversary based on the nature of it. And I think what the analytics do is they they help you to craft deceptions that are closer to how normal behavior and applications look like in your environment.
0: So Anthony, I wanna replay that scenario of monitoring user behavior and using that to craft deception scenarios. Because I think people always get in organizations and, and things that I, that I deal with uh, and they get very touchy when you start to say, we want to monitor your user behavior. Right? It starts to feel very big brothery. Right. Well, why, why do you want to monitor my behavior? And as an employee, I would feel the same way. Like what, what are you going to be watching for? Are you trying to trick me into something? Uh, but I, I like the way you framed it out of like this. the deceptive part is not about trying to deceive your employees, right? We're not going to monitor your behavior to see if you're doing anything anomalous. We're monitoring behavior, and you could say, of a population, right? Of a team, right? The team is using a set of applications. The team is accessing a set of file shares. Whether that's one individual or 15 individuals, they should have a common pattern to them, right? And in your example, if they're using app one, and app two doesn't exist, that's a fairly benign behavior to be monitoring for from an employee perspective, right? Which feels very different than a insider threat, like a true insider threat, insider risk focus, which would be, you clicked on this link. Why did you click this link? Tell us now, or we're going to revoke your internet privileges, right? So I, I, I think the, knowing that we're talking about deception, right? It can start to feel very uh, cloak and dagger, Magician with a hat, like, I'm not just going to deceive you. I'm going to misdirect you, but I'm going to do it for nefarious. It feels in, very internally nefarious, but I like the way you spelled it out of like, there's, we can parallel things, right? It won't affect the user's behavior. It won't affect what they do in their day job, but we're being informed by how they execute their job to come up with the realistic uh, attributes of a deceptive scenario. And I think that's a really critical point to, to just replay and, and emphasize
2: yeah I, I, and i i agree a hundred percent and I think that's that's one of the avenues that deceptions can can play well is helping to bridge that um uh bridge that level of monitoring instead of casting a wide net right you're going you're going right after us very specific behavior um and that that likely will not be emulated by users in a normal mode um and so you know it definitely drives uh better acceptance especially amongst you know uh cultural groups globally that that have also you know different dispositions on privacy and and the other items there um and i used to be involved in a lot of those dialogues um i had the interesting pleasure of of running both a detection response function and being the lead of a of a data privacy office um so i was constantly having to beat myself up um over my monitoring techniques um, and uh, and working with uh, working with people to to help understand uh, uh, why we needed to do what we needed to do. So, but I agree hundred uh, percent. At the end of the day, it's all about detecting the adversary um, and people that are going to have a negative value proposition to the organization versus the ones with a positive value proposition to the organization.
0: Yeah. One one more question. Uh, so we we've, we've talked a lot about and you've given us a lot of great examples of how deception scenarios and campaigns can be constructed, how they can be deployed, how you might monitor for them. At what point does an organization, is an organization mature enough to be considering the cyber deception? What capabilities do they need to have in place before they start exploring deception so that they can use it properly? uh, And so that they're able to take action.
2: Yeah. I would say, you know, most deceptions, um, uh, if you think about it, right, it's about laying down something that will lead to a detection. So, uh, a true foundational component is a capacity to monitor. Um, now, does this mean you have a twenty-four by seven security operations center that's uh, staffed uh, with you know eighty people? <laughs> no, right. Um, you you could actually even be a smaller organization leveraging. Uh, let's say a unified xdr style platform that's sending you alerts um and you just configure it to monitor uh for an account authentication um and you know if it's something that gets sent to you in the middle of the night ideally um you know you have some way to get it brought to your attention sooner um but uh but i would say you know deceptions are very easy to plant um but it requires a um it requires a good understanding of your infrastructure as well, right? So um, so one is you got to have some monitoring capacity, but secondarily, you really want to understand the configuration of your landscape to make a meaningful kind of deception. Um, and so you know, if you're if you're not leveraging like a baseline security configuration standard, like a CIS benchmark or DISA-STIG, right? Um, you might have a lot of differentiation between uh components of your environment where a deception might not elevate to the top because everything kind of looks anomalous because each asset is a little bit different. Um, and so, you know, I would say, you know, a, a base monitoring capacity is a must and at least a high-level configuration understanding of your environment, which would include the identity level. If everybody's a domain admin, creating a domain admin deception is probably not going to be an easy feat. Um, If you have a highly constrained population of domain admins that's a tiered down account with, you know, highly locked down privileged access workstations and, you know, think, you know, Microsoft's Red Forest design of, of yesteryear, um, you know, then it's a lot easier to craft a deception relative to that configuration. Um, so I would say those are the two two big things you need.
1: No, I, so I guess off of that, Anthony, you know, I'm thinking about how you may have seen the cyber deception programs deployed before and trying to think of maybe some drivers behind it. So I know that you're mentioning, right, there's different maturities that you can deploy. There's also things that you need as kind of a baseline to even start considering it to your your admin point. If everybody's an admin, what does that actually mean? But from the perspective of, I'm trying to think, you know, you've got Different drivers and it may come from a regulatory perspective, it may come from the perspective of, of say your MA pursuits. Maybe that's a, a huge introduction of risk. But what do you see in the market? What's what's trending in terms of why, why the programs actually get built formally?
2: Yeah, I would say it, it tends to come back to the fact that. Point products alone, uh, security products in general, will provide you a lot of insight and a lot of protection. Um, but at the end of the day, um, excluding maybe solutions like EDRs, uh, which definitely are starting to elevate more and more specific adversary behaviors, it's the idea that um, uh, you know, most organizations are wanting to get into the middle of that adversary kill chain right? Um, You know, it's not just the end state of a piece of malware is present in providing me remote access, right? It's, I want to catch them earlier in that process, to to Brad's point, ideally, you know, through the first iteration of the kill chain from the internet, uh, as much as possible. Um, But, uh, uh, but fundamentally, you know, organizations that are, that are targeting, to control the behavioral aspects of adversaries in their environment tend to consider deceptions because of the, the natural application of them. Um, and f- Frankly, association between the use of deceptions in managing, you know, adversaries through other other uh, means, whether it's kinetic warfare or not, <laughs> right? So um, I, I, that's what I tend to see being a big driver. Um, another big driver, obviously, is people trying to sell deception products. <laughs> so uh, you know, they they come to the table, they they'll they'll go to a a, a large conference and they'll put on uh, um, a detection and response. Uh, um, type thing, and they unleash a whole bunch of hackers into it, and then they're tripping on the deceptions, and it's like, hey, we caught everybody, right? Um, so, you know, there's definitely that that piece that plays in there. But I would say, largely, it's organizations that have rationalized that the best way to detect adversary is to infiltrate their behaviors, um, and I think that uh, when you do that. Uh, when you're open to doing that and thinking about that, not only does it help you craft good deceptions, but it also helps you to craft better defenses, period. Um, if you understand how an adversary is going to come after your environment, that will help you to rationalize the attack surface that you make available um, and prioritize uh the investments that you make. So um, so at the end of the day, I think that's a that's a big value proposition for for organizations and that deceptions might be an outcome of that.
1: I think that makes sense. And I, I do want to maybe put this in the realms of, of industry and really either hone in on, on one of these industries I'm about to lay out or pick one yourself. But I'm thinking about for programs like a, say, automotive vehicle program where they're looking at autonomous vehicles. Or looking towards product security for medical technology, um, or you know, from a utility side, something where the availability is highly critical to to our general population. You know, how would a cyber deception program really bring bring that benefit in a way that's unique? And I understand some of the benefits that you've outlined, but specifically for something that is so heavily, say, visible to to the general population.
2: Sure. Um, you know, I would say uh, it, it's interesting. It, take take the automotive one as an example, right? Um, now, there's deception that you could do on the corporate side, which is all the R and D that's associated with with autonomous vehicles, right? So this is the code. This is all those things. Crafting deceptions toward that value proposition is going to be a big thing, right? Um, but even if you were to get into the automotive sphere, um, and you think about the end state product right? The end state product is a vehicle with autonomous capabilities, right? Um, and, you know, everybody's, everybody's seen the, uh, uh, you know, hacker takes advantage of Jeep and gets it to shut off and do this. And, you know, we can convince the Tesla vehicle to do X, Y, and Z. Um, you know, there, there is a community of researchers that is looking at automotive. Um, so the idea of baking in a deception to trigger a safeguard, might be something interesting, right? So um, so maybe it's one of those things where, you know, the autonomous uh, uh, vehicle has a capability that allows remote access, um, but they make certain services available, some of which are a deception, right? And if it ever sees that a deception occurs on that port or on that uh, functionality uh, or, or an attack uh, is oriented toward that deception, that it disconnects that remote access um, or, or puts it into a safe mode, right? Like an immune system reaction to something that you wouldn't expect. Um, so you could use a deception to kind of get in the way of the research community, which they obviously probably wouldn't want to hear me say. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, right, I think it can, be, it can play a good avenue to creating uh, automated responses in end-state products, um and that might be something that expands even beyond automotive into other uh highly critical um and frankly life interfacing technologies
1: i like i like the example there almost like cyber deception is really the advocate for security down a lot of different avenues that maybe somebody's thinking you know this isn't this isn't really going to happen but for something so critical like i know we all know the example of the car gang shut down on the freeway so i don't need to go too far down that uh, but I yeah I really I really like that. And I'm thinking, you know, as you roll out, what what would you use to actually measure the success of of a deception program? And I know, you know, there you could just say a successful catch, but but what else?
2: Yeah. You know, this, this, this one's interesting. Um, I would say there, there's still a lot of work being done um, to, to, to full full out the value proposition because realize like a deception by design is not something that gets hit very often. Um, And frankly, if it is getting hit very often, then you probably need to think about how long the tripwire is, (laughs) right? Like, is it, is it too many false positives um, type, type of thing? So uh, so from that perspective, you know, it's, it's hard to measure success on the number of hits. Um, what I would say is, you know, part of the measure of success is is com- is being able to compare the intelligence related to the adversary to the design of the um, uh, of the deception itself, right? So, let's say you pick a very particular miter attack technique, and you build a deception that is going to take advantage of that. Um, if you If you find that your deception only applies to that one technique, and as adversaries are constantly changing their techniques and behaviors over time, um, that deception doesn't really service anything other than its original intent, um, then it's probably getting stale. Um, Whereas if you're able to craft a deception that you're like, hey, not only is it covering this, but now there's these two or three new techniques and if we just tweaked the deception a little bit, we could cover those techniques as well. Um, you know, I would say the applicability of the deception to the value proposition is something something that could, that could be measured. Um, but uh, but at the end of the day, right? It's uh, it's going to be part of a broader set of detection techniques. Um, and I think it's important to call it out distinctly because you don't want your deception work. Um, to be overshadowed by your normal security operations monitoring work, right? So like if you if you took a funnel of, you know, I have billions of events happening in my environment and it comes down to like 15 incidents that came from, you know, 20,000 escalations, right? Your deception is probably one of those, <laughs> right? Um, but here's the thing, if it's one of the 20,000 and it actually led to an incident, that's a pretty high value turnaround, um, so, uh, uh, you know, you definitely want to call out the wins when they happen. Um, but at the end of the day, I think, you know, measuring the applicability of the deception against the adversary behavior is the best way to determine, you know, the effectiveness it's going to have when it does fire. Yeah,
0: it's a, it's a really interesting point talking about the freshness or the staleness of a particular deception technique or a particular deception against attacker techniques. What is there in... An- is there a, t- a timeline of how often uh, companies should be looking at refreshing their deceptions uh, or remodifying or re-engineering their deceptions so they fit more techniques? What's, what's a, a good life cycle like for a deception?
2: Yeah, I, you know, I would say um, uh, you definitely want to probably be revisiting it at least every six months. Um, you know, that I would consider that to be the bare minimum. Uh, and the reason for that is because there's a lot of changes in adversary behavior every six months. Um, now, bear in mind, there are things that permeate time, like adversaries have been abusing using Mimi Cass to steal credentials for decades at this point, right?
0: Um, so, and it's still only in French for some reason. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> and so, so from that perspective, right, like some of those techniques are, are, are going to last a long period of time. Um, but, uh, but on a six month cadence, you can expect to see new behaviors, um, environments that I've kind of found to be more aggressive are at least looking at it on a monthly basis. Um, and in those instances, they, um, uh, you know, they're kind of balancing the idea of evaluating the effectiveness of that. Deception against all techniques versus maybe doing a deep dive against some techniques, right? So they take, think of like taking a sample of particular techniques that could be associated with your deception and then actually going through a modeling process to see. The applicability there, and then the next month they pick another set of techniques to run that simulation or immersion against. So there's a couple different ways you can slice it, but from my perspective, as you know, a six month cadence is probably reasonable, uh, for, uh, uh, for your regular uh, uh, plane plain, uh, deception.
0: And so, to put that into context, I mean, we're not talking about like with a, a sim or a monitoring tool where it's thousands of rules, thousands of escalations, we're talking a handful. Uh, so it's not an overly intensive list where you're having to review hundreds of different deceptions on a monthly basis or, or semi-annually, right? It's a, a handful of things, very well crafted, very well defined. And to your point, it's a, taking a sampling approach to what are the techniques that this deception is intended to, to trigger against and, and looking at it f- through that lens. So it's a, a much more manageable, more feasible way uh, or more feasible than it sounds, as compared to more traditional monitoring,
2: agreed, agreed. It, it is definitely not the bulk of detections that are happening in your detection response function. Um, you know, it may be you know sub five percent, <laughs> right? Like you're, you're, to your point, you're definitely talking about a handful of deceptions. Um, but you know, the one thing that is interesting about deceptions is the closer you are to the value. The more interdependency you have with the business process itself. And so the natural tendency of business is not to stay static. It's to be competitive and constantly change and evolve with the market. Right. Um, so that's why, you know, as part of this regular cadence to review your deceptions, you're not only going to be reviewing it against the techniques. But you're going to re reviewing it against the business process that you valued and built the deception around because the way that the business chose to operate, um may change the way that you look at the deception um and so that's the other that's the other piece with deceptions is that uh the better ones have have good applicability uh with the value proposition of an organization and by that very nature um are are m- maybe more vulnerable to uh the uh, mini- uh I'll say I don't want to put it more vulnerable to the idea that the business could change, which could ruin the value proposition of the deception.
1: I think Uh, maybe one one last point that I'll, I'll focus in on there is the interesting proposition that you've got with deception seems to come back to a lot around the culture of the business as well as what the actual value is that the business sees. And so when I think about it, One of the things that's unique about this is the potential and, say, current nature of it to inform a lot of an organization's, say, policies and standards that they're looking at on an annual basis. And maybe the, say, relevancy or reactivity of deception is so much higher that it actually does have a really good... Say voice as being a security advocate that's that's about today, not just what we've seen over over the last year so that's that's just something kind of interesting that I don't know if you'd agree with that but seemed kind of present
2: yeah yeah and I would tell you in the in the process of looking at deceptions and 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 applying it into the business realm um, the business is productive because it operates the way it's been operating right now when you get into that, sometimes you run into all sorts of interesting cyber hygiene issues, right? Like, you know, people are like, well, Hey, you know, you want to create a deception in in my space. This is the process that we execute and you find that they're fast and loose with data. (laughs) Right. Um, And so what you might find is you can also better inform um, good, uh, hygiene and, and data handling practices or technology handling practices by engaging in a, in a deception discussion um, because at the end of the day uh, if the more you're able to normalize the behavior around the business process, the easier it is to craft the deception as well as see less false positive outputs as well. so um, but there I would definitely say there's a, there's a tight knit between the two.
1: Well, Anthony, I, I think that this session today has definitely been eye-opening over really what a deception program means, as well as what an organization might might need in place, might be looking for to even deploy one. So I really appreciate the time, the input, the examples. All of it's been phenomenal, and I'm sure will be great to listen back to. But uh, thank you so much for your time today and your insights.
0: Yeah, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Anthony. I feel like you probably dropped some Easter eggs in there. You, you left us, you left us a few uh, deception campaigns that we're gonna have to go back and listen for. But uh, great, great talking.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Thanks a lot.
0: You bet.